Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. Today we're here from former world number one Luke Donald and chat stats with Arcos Golf's CEO and co-founder Sal Syed. Hi, I'm Luke Donald and welcome to the Golf Monthly Clubhouse podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Clubhouse. I'm Elliot Heath, hope you're all doing well and not missing golf too much during these times. I know I'm missing the game quite a lot, especially with this great weather that we're having. But luckily, we have quite an interesting podcast for you today. We've got two interviews. Firstly, our equipment editor, Joel Tadman, spoke to former world number one Luke Donald about... uh, what it was like being world number one and that was really interesting to hear his insight and also how that can apply to you and how you know he reached his peak he also spoke about the miracle at Medina how the game's changed since 2011 when he reached the world number one position he beat Lee Westwood in a playoff at the BMW PJ Championship at Wentworth to to get that honour I, I remember being there in the stands watching that it was really dramatic and uh yeah, I remember Westwood spun it back off the green and Donald hold to um, become world number one for the first time. Held it for around a year. And I just remember, I used to love watching Luke Donald play. Such great rhythm, just an amazing short game. One of the best short game players of his generation, without a doubt. Uh, and then after that, we've got a really interesting interview with Sal Syed, the CEO and co-founder at Arcos Golf. Arcos, the guys um, that track stats and have a new caddy feature on their app, which actually tells you what club to hit, how hard to hit it and things like that. It measures the wind, the slope and uh, all sorts of really cool technical things like that. So we had a good chat for 20 or so minutes and learned quite a lot. Actually, I think a lot of players can can improve their game using Arcos. So, so yeah, hopefully you enjoy that. I should say as well, we got another good deal on the magazine. We got three issues for £5 once again. So... Uh, check out our social media pages and the website for that. We've also got a special Sevi Bookazine available for four ninety nine on the Golf Monthly app. That's a brilliant read, some great writing there. And also, we had our Editor's Choice Awards. The third Editor's Choice Awards came out this week on the website. This week in the magazine as well. The magazine is out on Thursday, so pick up a copy of that if you can. Or just check out the website. We can see the full list of 100 products. And on the website, you'll find all the latest golf news, lots going on. In the world of golf, will the Ryder Cup go ahead without fans? Will the PJ Tour resume on the 11th of June? We've got it all covered as well as some really cool features and great videos as well over on our YouTube page and on the website too. So yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for supporting us. Uh, Please leave us a review on iTunes if that's where you listen and remember to subscribe on your usual platform. Let's get into our interview with Luke Donald. Right, okay, so I am delighted to say I'm joined by, I think it's fair to say, one of the greatest English golfers, certainly of my generation, uh, Luke Donald. Luke, thank you for joining us on the Golf Monthly podcast. No, no, no problem. Joe, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, in lockdown, unfortunately, but um, it's great to t- talk to you, as always. And um, we've already been talking, myself and Luke, about his relationship with Mizuno, some of his favourite clubs uh, for an upcoming feature in Golf Monthly. So make sure you subscribe to the magazine so you don't miss that. Some fascinating insights there. But now, Luke, I want to throw it right back to May 2011. You win at Wentworth. You become the world's best player. And the reason I want to talk to you about this, because I think there are some parallels here with the club golfer in terms of 
learning about how you apply yourself amongst your competitive set to be a better golfer or even the best golfer that you can be, no matter what level you're at. And what I want to know is, first of all, Luke, when you first started playing as a junior, then progressing through to the amateur and pro game, was the ambition for you to become the world's best player or was that simply a byproduct of just winning tournaments? Well, I think ultimately it was a byproduct more than anything. Um, certainly when I was a kid growing up, uh, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, be on the putting green grinding and having put myself like with a five footer to, to become num- world number one. Like it was always to win the Masters or win the Open Championship, you know. So I don't think as a kid you really dream about being number one in the world, but you dream about lots of success in tournaments and majors and uh, those kind of things. So, but of, uh, in 2011, when I, when I won the match play, the Accenture match play in uh, Tucson, I suddenly jumped from, I think, number nine in the world, which I wasn't very close to number one. I, I mean, it seemed like a, a nine to one was, there was quite a big gap. But when I won that tournament, I jumped to three in the world. And then suddenly at that point, I, it, it it dawned on me that I really had a, um, an, an opportunity to get to number one in the world. And that's kind of when my focus switched to, to getting there and uh, trying to make that reality, uh, that dream a reality. Yeah, I mean, 2011 was just an insane year for you. Four wins, 14 other top tens I've got written down here. Leading the tour in strokes game, putting approach, scoring average. I mean, what do you remember about your state of mind that year? You know, going into a tournament in terms of confidence, you must have felt completely unbeatable, wouldn't you? Well, I think the, the match play win was was big for me. I, um, you know, I seem I dominated every match. Something clicked that week uh, in my swing. Uh, I certainly I gained a new level of confidence, and winning always helps. And that was kind of the first win of that year. I went on to win three more times. Uh, obviously at Wentworth, I won in Scotland, I think, um, trying to think where else, but, um, yeah, I think winning, it gives you that extra boost of, of motivation and confidence that you can do it. You know, it's nice to be consistent week in, week out. And obviously, as you said, 14 top tens that year and that helps and you're building, building that, that knowledge that you're going to break through. And suddenly when I did break through, I think that gave me yeah, a huge boost of confidence to continue on and spur on for the, for the rest of that year. I mean, yeah, you talk about the motivation. I mean, after you get to the top of the pyramid, you know, be at the top of the rankings, you've, you've got nowhere to go there. I mean, did you struggle for motivation towards the end of that year and afterwards? Oh, absolutely not. Um, there's so much to achieve in this game and, and certainly stuff I haven't achieved. You know, I never I haven't won a major. Um, so that was always a focus of mine. You can always win more tournaments. I mean, you like compare yourself to some of the greats, the, the Tigers and the Jacks and, and those kind of guys. You're, you're still so much, so far behind any of those that, you know, the feel, you feel like you can always improve. And then that was always my kind of the motto is like, keep getting better. How can you keep improving? Obviously, I couldn't improve my ranking, but I could... I could continue to be consistent and win tournaments and keep myself there. And obviously, when you're getting to number one in the world, everything is kind of going your way. You're, you're doing a lot of good things. So the game feels reasonably easy at that point. And so I think for me, getting there was 
was harder. Staying there was a little bit easier for me um, because I was just enjoying the moment. I was enjoying being there. I was enjoying the easiness the game seemed to be having um, at that point in my career. And you mentioned uh, during your win at the match play how something in your swing just clicked. I mean, do you remember what it was? What was your swing thought that week? I'm just curious to know what that feels like, basically, as someone who's never experienced it. Yeah, it was, it was a, a little bit to do with my right shoulder. It was getting a little bit high on the backswing. I was trying to really feel like it kind of stayed down. Uh, it was probably flattening my, my path just a little bit. As I said, I've, I've at times been quite steep. And I think uh, gave me a little bit of a shallower angle attack into the ball. And for some reason, that just seemed to click with everything. I've always been uh, pretty proficient uh, with the short game and, and the putting and the Never had to think too much technically from that standpoint. I've always just been naturally very good. Obviously, worked very hard on the technical side, but um, it's not something I, I have to focus on too much. But with the full swing, it's sometimes a little bit different. But for whatever reason, um, yeah, that, that week it just kind of clicked in place. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of started putting my foot down on the accelerator and just uh, never looked back. Absolutely. And you talk about the hard work that you did. Obviously, I know you did a lot of work with, with Dave Allred during that time. And can you just kind of share some of the things that you did, maybe outside of tournament days in preparation that you think really helped elevate your performance? Well, Dave was, uh, was great for me in terms of structuring my practice, how I practice, uh, making practice difficult, um, making me very accountable uh, I was writing down everything. Um, I was seeing the pro progress through what I was accomplishing each and every day. And I think that was giving me a lot of mental belief uh, as well. And he pushed me quite hard physically in terms of how much I was practicing, how much I was working out, uh, how much I was, um, again, being very diligent with everything that I did uh, in, in my practice and making sure that it meant something. So, yeah, Dave was really good at that in terms of you know pushing me, and uh, obviously got a lot out of uh, out of his guidance. And then just moving on to kind of tournament days themselves out out on the course, what do you think that was giving you a competitive edge there? Well, I can even go back three years to 2008 at the US Open when I had to pull out with four holes to play because I ruptured my ECU tendon in my uh, left wrist, uh, I had some issues with my, with my swing. I was trying to hit the ball a little bit further and, and uh, had to go through a, a wrist surgery where I was out of the game for six months, but gave me a lot of time to really think about my game, what I needed to do to, to be the best player Luke Donald could be. And I really needed to concentrate on what my strengths were. And that was kind of 150 yards and in. I was never going to be one of these players that overpowered golf courses so um for me you know having that time to really focus on what my strengths were set me up you know that was that was the catalyst for setting me up for some really good golf coming up um and um i was just dominant from 150 yards and in and it, it gave me so much momentum on the golf course. It gave me so much confidence. I didn't, I didn't care if I missed the green. I knew I was going to get up and down. I didn't care if um, you know, I hit the ball to 60 feet on the green. I knew I was going to free putt. 
so you know those little things really built up a lot of confidence in me and gave me um you know a, a great great building block for for consistent scoring and, and that's why that consistency uh was really was really there for quite a number of years yeah i mean how nice it must be to know that you're never gonna three part and i've got a stat here i think it was 483 holes you went without a three part which is obviously incredible i mean if you had one top tip for amateur golfers holding out from short range that really worked for you in that time what would it be well the tip would be to to make sure you're putting it to short range obviously uh, in, <laughs> in professional golf if we can get it within three feet we know we're, we're not going to miss from three feet we're 99 percent from three feet and in so being able to lag the ball within uh you know, that three to four feet or, or closer range, you're going to minimize those three putts. If you keep lagging balls to six, seven, eight feet, you know, you just can't do it. Even tour professionals only make 50% of eight footers. So, you know, what chance do you have as an amateur? So learning how to um, get the proper strike on the golf ball, I think with the putter, a lot of people get that wrong. They accelerate they that long follow through where they're accelerating past the ball and they don't get a good solid strike on the ball that way. If you can learn to solid, hit, hit good solid strikes, you're going to learn to control your speed. And then hopefully that way you're going to hit those long putts a lot closer and you're not going to, uh, not going to, you're going to eliminate a lot of those three putts. An excellent tip there, Luke. Thank you for that. And um, just, just talk a bit about your, your game now. You had a good finish at the Honda Classic relatively recently i mean you know where where would you assess where your game is now and also how different is tour golf now compared to 2011 when you were world number one well i'll answer that one first i don't think it's too far uh along obviously technology has improved a little bit more probably driving distances up a little bit uh we've probably start we're played probably playing golf courses that are a bit longer um, but people were still hitting it pretty long, long in 2011. Technology was still still pretty far along. We uh, we still understood uh, a lot about how to hit the ball far back in 2011. So I don't think the game has changed that much. Um, uh, where my game is right now? Well, I think it's actually in a, a decent position. I had a had uh, had a chance to to win the Honda my my last tournament before we all got locked down. Um, and I feel like my ball striking is, is very close to how it was in 2011. I don't think my short game and my putting and my, my, my wedge play isn't as sharp as it was. It's going to be hard to do, uh, to replicate that, but my, my iron play has really started to come along. Uh, I've again, coming off an injury from last year, being out with a back injury, able to take some time and really figure out, you know, what caused that. How I can improve, like what's uh, a good way for me to find some improvement, and uh, I've certainly improved um, the efficiency of my swing. Uh, I'm putting less pressure on my spine, on my back, um, and I think that's all really helping with my ball striking. I'm, I'm certainly coming into the ball a little bit shallower. Um, I'm using my hands a little bit less. Uh, I'm using the ground a bit better. Uh, that's all things that are going to help me um, with my ball striking. And I start to really see that uh, in the last couple of tournaments I played. So it's disappointing we're, uh, we're all on a break. I know golf is certainly low down on uh, a lot of people's uh, priority list right now, but uh, certainly excited for when we do get 
to go back um, because I feel like my game is uh, in, a, in a pretty good position. Obviously, you mentioned there we're in lockdown and we're not we're not seeing any goal from Telly. But what we are seeing is we saw Luke Donald commentating on the 2012 Ryder Cup at Medina on the watch along uh, episode with Sky Sports. I mean, from a personal point of view, what is your fondest memory of that that week? Fondest memory would have been uh, seeing Martin Keimer six foot ago in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so. Uh, Close at the end. Obviously, we we had a really uphill battle going into Sunday, but we were very um, we were pretty upbeat. Being ten six down, when we saw the singles line up, we felt like the matchups were perfect for us. Uh, we felt like they maybe had made some errors in um, where they put some of their players, and somehow we just felt like it it really panned out well. We really all liked our individual matches and. Uh, even being four points down, we we had a, had a belief that we could we could pull this one off, and uh, obviously it happened. But uh, it was touch and go for a long time throughout that day on Sunday. Um, but when that putt finally went in, of timers to that realization that we pulled it off, that was that was very very special. And you were first out, is that correct, in the singles? Yeah, I went out number one against Bubba. Um, was that a this? You know, is that a place you wanted to be or were you kind of told that's where we wanted um, to be uh, Jose had asked us uh, kind of what where in the lineup we'd like to be and I said somewhere near the top um, you know I felt at that time I was number three in the world uh, they wanted when you're when you're down you're usually going to put your strongest players out first or near the top of the order because you want to get off to a good start um, that's that's the general uh, um the plan when you when you're down. So um, I didn't find out till I got back to the hotel that he he put me out number one. Um, and uh, you know against Bubba, I think it worked out really well because Bubba all week had been trying to whip up the crowd and he was feeding off the energy. And me being someone that lived in Chicago, uh, had a lot of support there. There wasn't as much energy uh, against me. There was and not as much for him. And I think just my style of play, how I just kind of go about my business, I'm not uh, you know, pumping my chest. I think it quieted him down a little bit. He, uh, he wasn't as exuberant. And um, I, saying that, I, I, I played my best golf uh, of the week on Sunday. I really didn't put a foot wrong and just made it very difficult for him. And uh, it was nice to, nice to get that, that point on the board first uh, on Sunday. Yeah. You talked about the energy of the crowd um, just then. I mean, there's talk at the moment of potentially a Ryder Cup in Whistling Straits with no fans. I mean, what, what is your kind of immediate reaction to that if it were to happen? Well, my immediate reaction would be sadness and uh, maybe be uh, very, very different. Obviously, the Ryder Cup is all about the fans and uh, the atmosphere, the passion, the um, the energy and uh, yeah, that's going to be strange. Obviously, if we do get to start the U.S. tour in June, the second week of June, which they've penciled in for, for now, um, you know, the, the first four events are going to be no crowds. So we'll, we'll have to see what that feels like. But with a Ryder Cup, that's that's just uh, yeah, it's hard to even imagine, to be honest with you. Um, but I think 
that whatever we're going through now is going to create some different times and, and different things. So if it does happen, we'll, we'll try and make the most of it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure the fans would still be tuning in in their, their, their groves to, to watch it. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And Luke, thank you for talking to us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Stay safe and uh, hope to see you back out on the golf course very soon. Yeah, same to you, Joel. Thanks. Thanks for the call. So that was Luke Donald. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Now we'll get on to another interview that we have today, which is with Arcos's CEO and co-founder, Sal Said. Now, initially, this was about their distance report, which was contrary to what others say. And um, they actually found that driving distance was actually decreasing. So in 2017, they had it at 224.7 yards. Two years later, it went down to 222.1 yards. And this was looking at over 26 million shots so um quite realistic and it shows that whilst the guys on tour may be hitting it longer perhaps not all of us mere mortals are doing the same yeah so let's get into this interview now thanks a lot to sal for his time there's some really interesting stuff in here and uh yeah let us know do you use stats to to measure your golf game and um or is it something that you're thinking about let us know firstly sal would you like to chat to us about arcoth's insights on distance data how did you go about getting it and like how many golfers were recorded and you know all the nitty-gritty details like that yeah there's uh, i mean data set is pretty large if i remember it's like i think we have 40 million drives recorded we've got um about 300,000 golfers um <clears throat> so it's a it's a large data set and then we obviously um, run statistical uh, analysis on it where we take out outliers and all that stuff, the usual stuff that statisticians do. And uh, we started looking at, you know, <clears throat> I mean, obviously there's this huge conversation in golf that's happening on distance and what's happening. And um, like our view was we have all this data for the millions and millions of golfers out there that are not the PGA Tour players. And nobody's talking about what's, going on over there and i would say that's the lifeblood of the game and so we wanted to look at what the data is showing and i mean honestly it's showing we're not hitting it longer um in fact over the last uh, couple of years uh by and large across handicaps driving distances have been going down not by a lot by a couple of yards but with the large enough data set we know uh, that that is statistically significant so they are decreasing not increasing right now but that probably is a small cycle and probably my guess is it kind of just goes back and forth for the average golfer um, unless there's a i would say revolutionary change in technology it kind of hovers around similar stuff it depends upon how well you're fit there are certain iterations that happen that make it a little bit better then maybe we go backwards a little bit because we don't have like as engineers in the golf industry they don't have tools to measure what's actually happening on the golf course till arcos has come around um Otherwise, a lot of the measurements happen on hitting in hitting bays and on launch monitors and uh, with robots. And we know humans aren't robots and you're driving on the course isn't the same as you're driving on the range where on the course you're not never taking 20 drives in a row to groove something. You're, you're hitting one, then you hit another one 15, 10, 15 minutes later. So right about now, Arcos, I would imagine aren't getting a massive amount of data with this coronavirus yeah. worldwide pandemic. How's that been affecting you? 
You know, um, I should look at, uh, I know rounds are most certainly down. Um, we, we track all kinds of stuff, all kinds of metrics about our system health and everything. And uh, March, like we were really, really, I mean, this year for us, like we're, uh, since our user base also grows, so we're looking at rounds growing naturally anyway. Um, but we can obviously normalize to the user base, but it's clearly down, clearly having an impact. And I, I think like over the last few days, I mean, we have, we have this internal system that measures uh, the number of shots taken per second uh, by Arcos users globally. And I would say it's probably down. I mean, I, we'd have to do analysis, but my, this is my best guess without looking at deeply into data. Like we're probably down 70% or so uh, in terms of rounds played. And uh, this is at a global scale. Uh, uh, on a frequency of shots hit per second, where it should be and where it is. So uh, otherwise, I think generally we some in, in golf season we get up to sometimes like twenty, thirty shots per second, and right now we're probably at one to two shots per second uh, being taken by Arcos users. Yeah. So this pandemic has given you a chance to enhance your relationships with um, via your Facebook group and your ambassadors and partners as well, is it? It has. Um, I think, uh, I mean, obviously we're all uh, at home and working from home and sitting and looking at ourselves like, like, cause we cannot watch golf tournaments. I personally am dying for golf content. And uh, so I'm yeah, like looking all at all the videos that I've never looked at, which is which is actually cool. Like I, I I'm actually enjoying watching uh, all these uh, influencers golfing. I, I saw like uh, Riggs was uh, at Pinehurst, um, and so it's it's fun watching that. But uh, we we certainly are engaging with our user base. We're creating content. We are also uh, uh, one of the ideas internally we came up with. We're like you know we're all stuck at home. Our users are stuck at home. What can we do? Um, to uh, maybe make being stuck at home a little bit better for a golfer. And uh, so we created this uh, game. It's called the Arcos Five Putt Challenge, uh, where you take five putts. We're going to launch it hopefully next week. Um, but the idea is you uh, take five putts from different distances. You input it to uh, our website, uh, which ones you made and which ones you missed. And we give you your putting handicap and how many strokes you'd gain or lose versus the average PGA Tour Pro on an 18-hole round based on that level of performance. So it gives you, uh, we've seen like probably the best thing you can practice right now is your 10 feet and in uh, putting game. And there's certainly strokes to be gained for everybody over there. So my hope is once we launch this game, a bunch of Arcos users, or not even Arcos users, it's open to everybody. Um, they come out of this uh, pandemic uh, as way better putters inside 10 feet than we've ever been, which would be really cool to see. Yeah, so you mentioned strokes game there. Some people may not quite understand that. Could you give it a go? What, what exactly is strokes gained? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think like uh, it is a little bit of a complicated thing to describe, but once you know what it's communicating, it's relatively easy to understand what it's telling you. So maybe I'll describe first how, uh, what, what it tries to tell you. So as a, and I'll go maybe at a high level, like it, what strokes gain is going to try to explain to you is, okay, if you're a, let's say a five handicap, or let's say you're a 10 handicap, who wants to be a five handicap this season? So you're five shots worse than a five handicap. The strokes gained will tell you where is the five handicap gaining strokes on you. Those five strokes, where are they gaining it? 
And that can be broken down into, say, at a highest level, four uh, components, driving, approach, short game, and putting. And it might be, and every, every golfer is different. So you as a golfer might realize, you know, um, I'm losing four shots on my driving game to the five handicap golfer. And that's the top thing I got to work on. Uh, somebody else, uh, the strokes gain insights might tell you, you know, you're losing three shots on putting. Uh, and that's what you got to work on. So at a high level, what strokes gain is telling you is where is some, like where you want to be to where you are, where's that person gaining strokes on you or where are you losing strokes to them? Um, and that pinpoints where you should, what you should work on. And if you want to get technical, the way it works is it's really based on benchmarks and averages. So how does a scratch golfer, the average scratch golfer perform? It takes into account how far they hit certain shots, takes into account how often do they hit or miss fairways, takes into account when they're hitting approaches, how close are the approaches going versus what you're doing. So it takes all that data into account to generate these uh, stats for you. Uh, and that's what we're doing. And, and, and then um, I think like the interesting thing with strokes gained, which is a feature we're going to be launching in Q2 this year, like an in-depth strokes gain analysis of your game. We're going to go even deeper above, uh, beyond uh, those high-level four layers that I, four facets that I shared. We're going to tell you, okay, if, if, if it is four strokes you're losing on driving, how can you uh, improve that? And it very well might be for you that you are losing two and a half of those on distance. So now you know th that your number one thing you got to work on is driving distance. Or maybe for you, it's accuracy and penalties. And you're being overly um, aggressive on certain shorter par fours, taking driver and where there's hazards. So you're getting too many penalties. It's really going to pinpoint exactly what you need to do to work on. And if it's approach, you're losing it, what yardages are your weak spots so you can work on it. If it's putting, like is it short putts that you're struggling with? Is it medium length putts? Is it long putts? It's going to give you insights that have never before been possible uh, for the average golfer out there. Obviously, PGA Tour pros have this. This is how they improve. This is how they work. This is how they live. Yeah, that's very cool because you obviously hear about strokes gained on the PGA Tour and the European Tour, but to see it applied to the amateur game is very cool. And I guess if you've got 300,000 users, it could be quite accurate throughout the entire oh, yeah. globe. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be super accurate and it'll be more accurate than anything that's ever been created in golf because we are using um, AI, we're using a neural net, which is, like, I mean, it's like the latest and greatest in data science. And it's essentially a neural net replicates a human brain. So it's essentially what we've done is created a human brain designed specifically for strokes gain. So it's learning all the time. It's all that stuff. It's, it's fascinating, but it's amazing. The technology is now, I mean, it's come so far that's available to companies like us. The, these kinds of things were never before available to smaller companies like us. So obviously you've got a lot of stats at your fingertips. What categories do you see improve when you see golfers improve? You know, I mean, we've looked at that and it's literally across the board. So every golfer is different and it's not like, you know, everybody needs to work on their putting. There's a quarter of the golfers are really good putters. So it really isn't um, uh, like one piece. It's really very personal. And that's like the key insight has been like, you can't go and say like, hey, everybody needs to work on their driving. There's a bunch of golfers out there who are better um, at driving than they should be at the handicap they're at, but they're much worse at approaches. Um, I think one of the things I will say is um, there is, uh, I, I think the one of the early improvement areas we see 
is there's this cognitive bias among golfers and actually is among, among human beings. We overestimate our ability and that's by design and that's how we're confident about our abilities and all that stuff. But what that does do is it in golf, it leads us to make suboptimal decisions. Uh, so we think our five or let's say our eight iron goes 150. Um, that might, that generally, if you ask somebody, I mean, there's this big gap uh, and it's funny, like we were just looking at the data, the gap between your perceived performance and your actual performance widens the higher your handicap. And the way we're judging that is your club selection, how far you actually hit that club and when do you pull that club? So um, so that like uh, that gap, obviously, in PGA Tour players, they're very, very aware of their game, their strengths, so they're pulling the right club more often than not. Um, and then that overestimation ability with a higher handicap widens. Um, so what we're able to do is give you what your actual club distances are. And then you're making decisions not based on emotion or based on the greatest shot you ever hit because you remember that so well, um, but you're basing it on actual outcomes that are calculated by a computer to give you real information. And, and honestly, you can't remember your shots. Like, let's say you play five rounds a month and how are you going to figure out how far your five iron goes? That's over 30 days. Maybe, maybe you're using a five iron two, two times around or three times around. So now you have 15 shots over a month. You're not going to remember all the shots. You're going to remember the best ones or the worst ones. And then you're going to make your decision on the best one. Or the worst one, in which case you might leave in the bag. And that probably isn't the right way to make those decisions. And, and so that's what we're able to do. We're here to help you make smarter decisions. So we do see our average user after um, 10 rounds hits their approach shots 14.9 feet closer to the hole. Uh, what we also see, which is really fascinating, is our Arcos users get holes in one at a 5.5x frequency than the average golfer out there. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So um, as well as recording the stats, it, you uh, also provide a range finding service as well, don't you? Correct. Yeah. So what we've done, I mean, when you, like, I would say like what we're trying to do is really, when you look at the history of the game, the caddy has been an essential part of the game. And that caddy's kind of gone missing uh, for 98% of us um, and some of the elite clubs and uh, great courses, caddies are still there, but the, generally caddies don't know your game, by the way. You're going there uh, and they're learning on the fly in the first two, three holes. They're trying to figure out what kind of golfer you are. But when you look at the history of the game, the caddy was always there. So what was the caddy's role? Um, that's what we're trying to replicate through technology in a seamless way. And one of the things the caddy helps you with is to give you an obje objective view into your game and into decision-making on the course. So if you have 150 yards, um, and the wind is coming into your face, and it's downhill, and it's colder in the morning. Like, wh what's the impact of all those weather conditions? Uh, actually, it's very hard for even good caddies to figure that out. Uh, when you talk to Ted Scott, who's Bubba Watson's caddy, and he's an Arcos ambassador, avid user um, of the system, that's how we got to know him. Um, he talks about, he's like, you know, like, I'll be wrong more often than, are like uh, and he's a PGA Tour caddy. That's his profession. Then uh, he he'd rather trust Arco's caddy numbers, and because we don't. I mean, they're just going to be more accurate and spot on. So, so with Rangefinder, that's one of the things we like, we've applied AI to it, and we're giving um, golfers the smartest number. We call it the Arco's number. It's the most accurate number in the game, 
um, it takes all these uh, factors into account. Then we also show you right below that number, like your five nearest clubs, that's the USGA ruling to make it USGA conforming. Um, and then you can make a smarter decision. Like, do you choke down on a certain club or do you jump on one? I would recommend generally always choking down, but you as a golfer then get to decide. And it's a data-driven decision. And it's going to be a smarter decision than anything else out there. So instead of just telling you to hit a full six iron, the Arcos Caddy will advise you how hard to hit that six iron. Well, that'll be your decision. We'll show you if you hit a, your, your um, expected six iron distance. Let's say um, Arcos Caddy number is 172. Factoring every like humidity, wind, gusts, it'll actually give you a gust range. Um, temperature, um, elevation, um, slope, all that stuff into account. Um, let's say it's 172 yards. We'll show you, you know, your six iron goes 169. Your five iron goes 177. So then you get to decide how you're going to play that shot. We're not telling you like whether to choke down or whether to jump on something. But we're giving you the information so you can make a smarter and more confident decision about whatever you're going to choose to do. So it's uh, sensors that, uh, I mean, the, whole, the entire interaction happens within the app. But to get all your data captured, it's sensors that um, you can either purchase aftermarket. Uh, well, right now, there's not a lot of places open, but you can go to any of the Apple stores. Uh, you can go globally. You can go to Amazon. You can go uh, in the U.S. Dick Sporting goes another retail uh, I think American golf and other places in, in the UK. And then if, or you can get the sensors. If you buy ping clubs or Cobra clubs, they come uh, with the sensors embedded. So you get a 90 day free trial, great partnerships with them. And uh, then you download the app, pair your clubs. It's a one-time, super simple, very cool pairing process. And then when you get to a course, you just start the round. We already know what course you're on. You just click start round. And that's it. Then you interact with the app as much or as little as you want. And we're giving you all the information right on your fingertips whenever you need it. It's right there for you. Oh, that's, that's very cool how golf is embracing technology in this 21st century. Um, probably helping keep the younger players involved and engaged in the game, you would think. You think I would think important? so. Yeah, I think yeah. when you look at... Um, well, we skew older because golf generally skews older but we do have a lot of young people on the platform but i think in general if if any sport not just golf i would say any sport doesn't embrace technology they're going to lose the next generation um, because that's how i mean it's, it's just been proven out across industry whether it's sport or not if you don't embrace technology um you're going to lose the next generation and, and especially more relevant today where the mobile phone I would say has become an essential part of people's existence. Like that's uh, people are on their phones, whether it's for work, whether it's for entertainment, personal, business, family reasons, whatever it is, uh, you're on that device. And uh, I think the key is extending that device into your golf life in a way where it doesn't feel intrusive, but if uh, it's there when you need it, but it's not there in your face all the time. That's how we designer systems that's how we think about it it's there when you need it it's not going to force you um our app arcos isn't going to force you to interact with it it's there when you need it and it's your everybody's going to make that decision for themselves how often they want to interact with the arcos caddy just like you would with a human caddy um sometimes you 
for a few holes, you maybe want to zone out for or now you're up at a par three and it's windier and you want to figure it out. You want help. So we leave it to you. Uh, and then at different points, you want to analyze your game. Uh, sometimes you're doing really well. You're improving so fast. You don't want to touch anything. And you just want to see like how much you're improving. And that's great. Other times you're struggling and you were really want to deep dive into your data. We'll let you do that. So we leave that up to the golfer. Right. And um, back to the stats, do you have kind of like a, a leaderboard of which players have improved the most over a certain year? We don't internally keep a leaderboard, but we do know like our average user is a 16 handicap coming into the system. Obviously, that's the average golfer in the universe too, by the way. So um, average, um, I would say golfer who plays 15 rounds or more. And our average improvement for that person is about 4.2 shots on their handicap. Um, there have been users who've improved unbelievably. Like uh, people have gone from a 27. That's actually somebody I know uh, when they started using Arcos from a 27 to a four in three years. Um, wow. We're not saying that that's just all us, but what Arcos does is it provides you a roadmap. It provides you motivation. Uh, I think there's that understated aspect of the motivational piece where when once you have the information, this is, okay, I need to work on my approach game from this distance and I can get better. Now I got to work on this. That is really, really important. Um, and not having that and then working on the wrong things where you're just not seeing any improvement that can happen. And that happens to golfers all the time where you feel stuck. In fact, um, just recently I was um, uh, presenting alongside with John K. Solheim, who's the president of Ping. Uh, and he was talking about his experience with Arcos. And he mentioned like basically for, um, 15, 16 years, he was kind of stuck at like a seven or an eight handicap. And when he started using Arcos, he realized he didn't realize how actually good his driving and approach games were. And he didn't realize how bad his chipping was. He was chipping like a 25 to 30 handicap. Um, and within, I think, a year, he went from a seven or eight to a scratch. And so that that's the kind of stuff you can see. Uh, we do see consistent improvement because we, I would say it's, it just engages you more and makes you more aware about your game. Do you know how many greens an average golfer hits during a round and things like that? I, yeah, let me see. I, I do know like the average scratch golfer will hit about 59% of greens. Um, it's the greens hit drops dramatically by handicap versus, I'd say fairways hit. Uh, drops less dramatically, but that's uh, the distance on fair uh, on drives does drop, and that results in a lot of the higher handicappers hitting less greens. So thanks to Sal there for his time. I hope you found that interesting, and then I hope you enjoyed the Luke Donald interview too. Uh, Luke Donald, like I said, one of my favourite players. Loved watching him back in the day, and uh, I'd love to see him win a golf tournament again, especially after we've seen the likes of Westwood and McDowell win quite recently. So. So yeah, good luck to Luke going forward. And uh, yeah, that brings the end to this week's podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Please do subscribe on your usual provider and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. We'll be back next week. We've got some really good interviews coming up for you. So um, yeah, you'll hear from us very soon. Thanks. Thanks.